Welcome to the Open Door Church podcast. Our prayer is that you will be encountered and encouraged by the Holy Spirit and challenged by the word of the Lord. May the Lord bless you and stir faith as you listen to this week's message. So this morning, uh, I want to talk about the Lord's Supper. I want to talk about communion as we've been going through a series on community. Um, there's something about this ordinance of the church that needs to be um, explored because it is um, really deeply historical. It's deeply meaningful. But before we go into our, our key passage for this morning, I think one of the most helpful tools in reading the Bible, interpreting the, interpreting the Bible, and applying the Bible to your life is to understand the, the connectivity of the scriptures. That this isn't just a toolbox where if you need a hammer in your spiritual life, you can go to one verse and pull out a hammer. Or if you need a, a tape measure, which is very different from a hammer, um, you can go to another portion of the Bible, but it is actually integrated into a story for the glory of the Lord. There is difference in genre, there's difference in, in definitions and different things, but the story as a whole exists to be understood in unity. And so one of the most helpful tools, I think, for helping us to understand the Bible, not just in context to itself, but in context to history, is to... Um, be able to envision what it would be like to be the original hearer. And I hope this is encouraging to you this morning, not just like really sad, but the Bible wasn't written for us necessarily. Now, the Bible is timeless and inspired by the Holy Spirit, which means that it absolutely applies and cracks through everything of life infinitely. But it was designed and written to be interpreted by an audience. And the audience is very different than you and I. The audience existed many, many, many generations ago. They existed in a part of the world that's very far away from us, in a culture that's very different from us, from a political climate that's very different from ours. And sometimes people try to read themselves into the story by just saying like, all right, so obviously the hero is David. So I'm the hero, I'm David. And the, the villain is Goliath, and Goliath is, uh, choose like your political opponent that you don't like, or your neighbor who's trying to build on your property, or like their fence is really ugly. That's obviously my Goliath, or my Goliath is my, my dead-end job that's just not working. That's not the right way to put yourself into the story. That's kind of using the scripture to just scratch your own itch, if that makes sense. The point is to actually take ourselves out of our biases and put ourselves into the original hearer's stance. So what we're going to do is if you just bear with me for a moment, I just want to summarize our context by telling the story as if you and I were shoulder to shoulder and we were disciples underneath the Lord Jesus of Nazareth before his death and before his resurrection in the time that this story takes place. Cool? All right. Got your, your imagination caps on? Um, so it's been a couple years now. And you and I, we've been following this revolutionary rabbi, Jesus of Nazareth. And we've seen things that we could never have imagined. He has done spectacular works, and beyond the, the miracles and the signs, he has actually said things that just take our breath back. And the way that he's able to pour out so much, but still be so patient and compassionate, the way that he takes indignation with injustice, the way that he takes compassion with those who are suffering, the way that he touches the untouchable, and the way that he approaches the powers that be have been revolutionary. And it's been a pretty cool ride. I'm not a big fan of camping. You're a little bit better at camping than I am. We've, we've slept a lot of nights out in the middle of nowhere, but it's been really good. And now we're, we're coming in. We're years into this. The Lord has been doing so much. But lately, the spectacle has kind of lost a little bit of its sheen. We've been talking about this, you and me, that, that, this, that it doesn't seem like Jesus is doing the miracles that he was before. 
It seemed like every time we went somewhere, crowds of people were getting healed, food was getting multiplied, hallelujah. But now it seems like he's, he's a little more serious lately. And every time he talks to us, he's talking about death. And if we're being honest, Peter probably wouldn't agree with us, but if you and I are being honest, we don't know what he's talking about. I don't understand what he means. But it seems important. Do you know that like, when you hear somebody talk about something and you don't understand what they mean, but it seems important? And now, it's late March, and the weather in northern Israel is close to perfect. The, the, the cool, kind of cruel winter is passing away, but we haven't gotten into the brutal summer yet, and the nights are, are fresh, and we can sit and eat dinner on the rooftop, and it's beautiful, and we're coming up to Passover, and, and the rabbi comes up to, to, to you and me and says, I need you to prepare the Passover feast for me. And I say, of course. I mean, this is, this is Passover. This is something that, uh, as, as Jewish people, this has been a part of our lives since before we can remember. This is yearly tradition that bears so much significance to our people. And there's no lack of integration. This is religious significance. This is political significance. This is social, cultural significance. The Passover is very important. So of course we would eat the Passover with Jesus. But something, even with all these ideal sort of specifics, the weather is nice. Jesus is doing awesome things. Something feels solemn about this Passover. And so we ask, where, where, should we, where should we do this thing? And Jesus does that Jesus thing, you know, where apparently he's been planning while we were all sleeping. I don't know. He just seems to know things, you know. And he's like, if you go into town, there's going to be a guy. He's going to have a pitcher of water. Tell him the teacher requires your house to uh, hold Passover. And he's just going to take you into his house. How that works, how that's convincing enough, who are we even talking about when we say the teacher? But he knows. And we go, and this teacher with his pitcher of water leads us to his house, and upstairs is this large furnished room, and we kind of move things around, we set up all the elements, and, and for you, it's, it's so easy to remember the significance of these elements because it's so routine, that this is something that you've done for years. You can recall your father teaching you the scriptures about what the bread represents and what the wine represents and the bitter herbs represents, the lamb and how you eat it and all these sort of processes and how they work together. They're, they're inescapable. They're, they're like speaking your language. They're, they're so similar to that. And it's easy over the years and the decades and the generations from the, the institution, the insta, uh, installing of this um, ritual, the installing of this tradition, it's easy to kind of start to lose steam on these things, that it just becomes a holiday, it just becomes a special dinner. And there's something ironic about celebrating the Passover now, because what the Passover represented is the glory of the Lord being exposed to all the world as he delivers his children from an oppressive empire that was undefeatable by their own means. The Lord did the impossible, but yet, today, here we are again. It's a little bit more comfortable than Egypt, but seems a lot more hopeless to escape. And you still have this faith, and I do too, that, that Jesus is that deliverer. And hopefully, this Passover carries some sort of significance, but... When Jesus begins to speak, we're all reclined around the table, hanging on his every word, and he begins to draw meaning out of this that you've never heard in any Passover ever before, and you are familiar with the Passover. I hope that this framing can help you see how much this means to the audience when Jesus begins to say these things. Because communion, as we tend to call it in our church, is something that's been a regular part. We used to do it like 
every once in a while, and then we decided to start doing it every week because that's what the Bible says. But even with that, even with the commitment of doing it weekly, every time we get together on Sunday morning, there's something that always gets lost in the shuffle of what these things actually mean. And I hope that this, this framing will provide a, a, an excellent space for you to dive into that this morning. Because as we've been talking about community for the last several weeks, um, I was gripped with something. I was gripped with a memory. Um, we uh, did this uh, National Day of Prayer thing. We were down at the, um, the community center, that building on Hot Springs Boulevard. I don't know if it's, is, I think it's called the community center. They have like a big gym. And churches from all over the place were represented. And somebody didn't show up. Uh, I don't know. Somebody got sick or just didn't like prayer. I don't know what the deal was. And they were like, Adam, will you pray for this church's spot? Because Nate was already praying and somebody else was already praying and they asked me to pray. And I was like, sure. And they're like, what, do we, uh, what are we praying for? What's, the, what's the, the prompt? And they're like, unity. And I was like, okay, what do you mean? They're like, well, just unity. You know, unity is a good thing. Unity, unity. And I was like, okay, yeah. I mean, unity is a good thing. Sounds, sounds solid. Uh, and they're like, yeah, unity in the community. It rhymes, so it must be true. Um, and, and unity uh, in the church, I don't know, unity, cross-denominate, whatever, unity. And, um, and I don't know if it was exactly like that, but that's why it felt like. Just pray for unity. Why are you asking questions? Just pray for it. And so I sat there, and I was like, I don't, I don't, know, I don't know what to pray, because unity for unity's sake is nice. It's good to get along and not make messes. But realistically, just getting along and not making a mess is not necessarily productive. That's not necessarily getting us anywhere. And so I think I, I found a loophole, and I was praying for salvation. Because I was like, really, unity outs, on any other means besides Jesus is going to fail us. Unity on any other means outside of the, the excellent grace of God is going to be motivated by some sort of competitive factor. If, if, that, if that train of thought follows, it's like uh, unity at any other level is compromise, where it's like, I don't really want to hang out with you, but if I can get something out of you, I'll tolerate your ridiculousness for a while, and you'll tolerate my ridiculousness, and maybe I'll help you move someday or something like that. We can, we can mutually tran transact from one another, but the reality is that unity needs to be based around the person of Jesus. Because there's plenty of unity that's based around negative things, which is also uh, negative things are negative, in case you were wondering. It's the deep stuff. That's why you guys, that's why you guys come to Open Door Church. Negative is negative. Um, but a negative times a negative is a positive. So math. Um, look, at, look with me at John 17. It'll be on the screen so you don't have to lose your place in Luke 22. Um, John 17, this is the prayer of Jesus on the night that he was betrayed. He says this, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, meaning the apostles that were around him, but for those also who believe in me through their word, which I think is kind of us. You know, everybody that believed because of the apostles' teaching, because of their word, because of the scripture, that they may be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you. So this is, this is a powerful unity. This isn't meant to be a message about like Trinitarian theology, but it's very important in understanding God that he is distinctly three and unified one, and there is unity among the Godhead. There is unity, and God has existed since eternity past. And then he continues, that they may be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. And so I, I am... Uh, insanely partial to the New American Standard 1995. I haven't read the updated version. I don't think it's changed that much. That's what I was told. Um, <laughs> biblical scholarship is, is, is advancing slowly, but, um, <laughs> but our understanding is solid. I think our understanding has been solid even since King Jimmy, but um, I like the way this, this sort of ping-pongs that we would be one, like Jesus and the Father are one, that we may be in him that the world may know him. And it kind of bounces back and forth, and it can, it can get lost in that, that ping pong. But I think this is saying, in essence, that our own unity is built around Jesus so that the world can know Jesus. So unity for unity's sake is whatever. I don't want to get in a fight. I'm not a very con 
like, I, I'm not a big, huge fan of conflict and confronting people and stuff like that. But, but unity based around Jesus is a universal witness to the entire world and all of creation that the Lord is God. Cool? <clears throat> There's this line... Drawing from this idea, drawing from the idea of unity in Jesus, there's this line throughout all of history and multiple nations and denominations and all these different things that connects us. And I believe that is the Lord's Supper. I believe that is communion that has been a consistent tradition from Bible to today that has connected us. And, and, and I want to speak to that and I want to examine that as Jesus teaches it. So there are religious ordinances in the church. And I don't want that to scare you. If you're not a big fan of religion, I don't want you to get freaked out by the word ordinance. This, the, the other option is sacrament, and that sounds a little bit more scary than ordinance. I don't know about you. But there are two that we hold to very, very strictly, and that is the Lord's Supper, communion, and water baptism. That's like written into our statement of faith. That's the ordinances that we keep. Other churches have seven, and I don't know where those come from. But uh, generally, evangelical Protestant churches agreed on two ordinances, and they are important because of Jesus. And I think that's why we only have two verses seven. They're important because of Jesus. And really... When you think about these kinds of ordinances, at the ground level, at the very simplest of definitions, they are good like a photograph of a deceased relative is good. I don't know if you have one of these, or maybe they're in a house somewhere else that you don't currently live in, but you look at them and you remember fond memories of a, of a grandparent or a parent or, or just a dear friend. And it makes you think of those warm times when you were together. And something about those memories inspire you to keep living, inspire you to have hope, inspire you to maybe be the kind of person that that man or woman was, or maybe be the kind of person that that man or woman wasn't. Either way, it's a symbol that carries a greater significance. It's a symbol that means something beyond just the consistency of its elements. And at the ground level, these ordinances mean that. We have baptized plenty of people in this church. And not all of those people are these radiant followers of Jesus today. That being said, baptism isn't in itself powerful. It's tap water that fills up that thing. Even the people that we baptize in the river, it's just water. Nothing changes. But the symbol means something greater than the consistency of its parts. So it's not about where you get baptized. I remember Nate really wanted to baptize Jim Bishop, if you know who that is. It's kind of scary, kind of a big deal. And uh, he's like, I really want to get baptized, but I want to get baptized in the Jordan River. And we're like, Utah? And he's like, no, like Israel. I, nobody said Utah. That was my own stupid joke. Um, but I, I, I applaud him, and I, and I hope he got baptized in water eventually. But uh, And maybe it, it, it was meaningful to him for that sort of, uh, I don't know, consecration, sacrifice, or something like that. But it's really not about the water. <laughs> it, 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 and, and I've baptized people in a bathtub, and it's fine. You know, I think God still likes it. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'll find out later on that I totally messed it up. And they're not officially saved. I'm just kidding. That's not, like, <laughs> the water wasn't deep enough. I remember I baptized Jill in the river here. Uh, and it was like uh, December. <laughs> and it was very cold. And the water wasn't very high because a lot of it was frozen. And so we had to like get down on our knees just to get low enough to get her all the way under the water. And so um, it was awesome. Um, but the point is, these symbols at the ground level, these symbols are, are, are just that. They're symbols to represent something greater, something more powerful. And by itself, that's a good reason to do something. You know? That's, that's a good reason to motivate. I believe there's more, so don't get freaked out that I'm just saying, it's just crackers, man, get over it. Like, I, I wrote a teaching about this because I believe there's more to it. 
But the idea is, like, even if you are celebrating communion and you're just like, Lord, I want to remember these things that we read in the Bible. I don't necessarily feel this powerful spiritual high every time I take the bread and the cup. But to, to treat them as that, that trinket that you put on your desk to remind you of a happy memory and, and to remind you of the Lord and his glory is a good thing. Symbols are helpful. Beyond this, I believe that there is actually powerful spiritual elements to this story. So let's look at Luke 22, where you've been sitting patiently for some time. We're going to start at 14. I'm going to read with you. When the hour had come, he, he being Jesus, reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I shall never again eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he said, take this and share it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes. And when he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and he gave, the, he gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this. In remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And I want to break this down that this is a meaningful story and a powerful symbol that was actually apportioned to and appropriated from the pre existing meal of Passover that had been celebrated for generations and generations all the way back to Exodus 12. I think verse 15 is really telling. I, I just want to look at that really quick again. Jesus said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. I was thinking about this, and, and something about that kind of language is so compelling to me, and I hope it compels you too, to, to hear Jesus out of his own lips say, I really want this. Because it's easy to imagine Jesus. I didn't even grow up in church, so I don't have like some sort of weird like, like doctrinal baggage from some wrong teaching or something like that. But it's easy for me to uh, imagine Jesus as very composed and very in control. And so when he wants something, I picture like not a lot of emotion. But there's something about the way the, the author Luke had, had composed this that he expressed earnest desire. And I think we can understand that on two separate dimensions, that he wanted to have this Passover with his friends as a human being, that he made it clear to them many times before this and several times after, I'm going to suffer and die, exclamation point. And who among us would not want to have a refreshing, peaceful, meaningful time with friends on the eve of a great trial? That I believe genuinely from the heart of Jesus that he wanted to spend this time with them. He wanted to remember the significance that was laid down by their fathers, fathers, fathers in, in this time of, of excess. That's not a literal generate. Don't count the generations that way. There's way more than that. But the point is, he, he genuinely wanted to do this religious symbol with his friends one more time before he suffered the greatest anguish of his short life. The other dimension is, I believe that he was genuinely looking forward to this as a holy God. That something about this meal bore so much significance to him personally, but also as, as the doctrines of the Lord are kind of held up there. And, and I picture, and if you could picture with me, this uh, kind of, creepy person's bulletin board where there's all these different stories, all these different accounts, all these moments of history, and all these red lines that are, that are streaking across the board into the very center, and in the very center is the picture of the cross that is the, the ministry and the testimony of Jesus that all of these stories are coming together. That you'll read, like, Ruth, and you're like, What? You'll read Esther and be like, God isn't even talked about in this story. What? Why is this in here? You'll read Song of Solomon and be like, is this supposed to be here? 
Did I get the right Bible? What's going on? Depending on your translation, if you don't have a uh, more phrase-by-phrase uh, phrase translation, you're just like, I don't even know what they're talking about. There's a lot of fruit. There's a lot of livestock. I don't, it sounds, it sounds sexy, but I don't know if it should. Like, um, <laughs> another teaching for another day. Um, and I think this meal being a part of a greater discourse that Jesus is teaching, because the Gospel of John in this biography, there's great detail about this conversation that he's about to have. And he's sharing some of the most significant things that he will share in his incarnate flesh. And I believe that as a holy God, he was looking forward and earnestly desired this moment. This is, this is the reason that he came is to, to institute what he's about to. And, and I think it's so powerful. So let's look at the elements of this meal and I think when we talk about sacraments and ordinances, it's, it's rightly said, and, and sometimes I, I'm averse to this sort of language, and so I just want to apologize if I've ever avoided this from you. It's right, it's right to say it's an, inward, it's an outward expression of an inward reality. That feels like so simple and so silly. I feel like there should be more explanation than that. But it's true. That's what we were describing with symbols. That's the, the photograph of your grandfather on your mantle. That's the, the trinket you keep on your desk to remind you of something hopeful. That, that is the, there is something more significant that is invisible that this visible thing re represents. Baptism, communion, Lifting your hands during worship. These are all those kinds of things. And it's interesting. I, I mentioned the biography of John for Jesus, that he does not include this conversation. Which you're like, what? Why? I mean, he has the most detail about this like 48-hour period before Jesus is betrayed and crucified. Why wouldn't he include this detail? Now, when I, when I was reading about this, I found a very defensible theory that it's, it's widely accepted in, in archaeology and biblical scholarship that the Gospel of John was written quite a bit after the other three Gospels. And that kind of leads to why it's very different in the way that it's constructed. It just wasn't constructed for the same essential purpose, or I mean, I guess it has the same essential purpose, the same functional purpose as the first three biographies of Jesus. It was written afterward. And the theory that I read from several different people is that uh, John actually presupposed that people were already doing this, that they were already keeping the Lord's Supper regularly and didn't need to explain it to them again. And that's fascinating because in John 6, Jesus has this whole, whole talk about, if you don't eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, you have no part of me. And the people in the original context of Jesus saying this were like, uh, nope. Like, they were very freaked out by this, and they couldn't draw the parallel to the metaphor that he was making. But Jesus explains it to the disciples and, and, and comforts them. Well, actually, he doesn't explain it to the disciples, which is hilarious. Um, but he comforts them, and Peter confesses this powerful confession that where else can we go? You have the words of eternal life. Whatever you're saying, we're buying it. It, it works. And I think it's, 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 a, it's a poetic justice that even the original audience of John would understand. It's like, oh, he's speaking of the Lord's Supper. He's speaking of what we do when we gather together in remembrance of him as we proclaim his death until he comes. He's speaking of that. And so this ordinance, these elements are very significant. And we see throughout the book of Acts, it repeated again and again that this was, this was part and parcel to what the, the saints were doing as they gathered together along with the, the um, exposition of, of the teaching of the apostles and the scriptures, that there was a, a breaking of bread. There was a taking of the Lord's Supper together, and this was a part of their tradition. So let's talk about bread. Um, I, this is just an assumption. So if this isn't true, don't take it up in arms. I think it's likely that none of you have had bread in communion in the Western sense of the word. That depending on where you go, you don't get this beautiful baked loaf that's soft on the inside and crunchy on the outside. It's golden, it's, it's gorgeous, and it's delicious. Likely, you've probably had a cracker. Am I right? Yeah? Pretty true? I don't know if you've ever been... There are places that do the, like, pre-packaged cups. Have you ever had one of those? Um, and, and it's all for, for convenience, but it's like, I don't even know what's in there, man. 
It's definitely grape juice, that's for sure. But like the thing that's in there, the wafer dissolves in your mouth. Like it like disappears. It's like cotton candy without any of the good part of cotton candy. <laughs> and it's like, it feels kind of like styrofoam. And I'm like, are they giving a styrofoam, man? Is this the body of Jesus styrofoam, man? Um, but there's a reason. And it's not just about saving money. Maybe the little cups are about saving money. But there's a reason that we use the bread that we use. Because we used to do bread. We used to do like actual delicious bread. Um, but if we understand this story, where this begins, in its context, this is the feast of unleavened bread. <laughs> this is like, like you and me, if we, were, if we were Jewish followers of Jesus in this time, the last week would have been mothers and fathers making sure that they removed all the leaven from their house. If you go to Israel today, during Passover, mid to late March, early April, like literally leaven is taken out of stores. Like it's, it's a very big deal that there is no leaven in this bread. And so we kick it down to city market. We go to the international food section and we find matzah, unleavened bread, to just try and be faithful to the scriptures. But again, it's a symbol. <laughs> but there's a reason why we do crackers. It's not just to save money or something silly. But the significance to the Jewish people, if we go back to Exodus 12 and, and this sort of being instituted, is that um, the way the Lord communicates this to his people through the prophet is there's no time to let your bread rise. Get that leaven out of there because you're going to leave in haste. And so I just picture like, I, I've never had like a Passover Seder or anything like that. I've never done anything like that. But I just picture the significance of remembering that, especially the, the several generations directly removed from, um, from the actual Exodus event. I, I picture that significance of saying, like, man, we've had to pack up in the middle of the night and just go. Because when the deliverance was at hand, there was haste. Because it wasn't like some slow, careful process. It was deliberate and forceful. And so as you, as you I, I try my best to keep this like not stale, but it's a little tiny piece, so I think you can deal with a little bit of soft unleavened bread. <laughs> I like seal it in a bag and I put it, I try to keep it really, really fresh. But um, we just don't go through that much that fast. Uh, so as you think of that, like I, I would think of the, the deliverance of the Lord and how powerful and significant that is. And so Jesus takes this symbol and I like to picture that he's able to stretch it and draw it out to a greater significance. This is about the deliverance of the Lord, but the Lord is showing you the, the shadow behind the cracker that is Jesus himself. It's not just about the hasty deliverance that the Lord is going to execute, because then we're going to talk about the angel of death and stuff like that, which is intense. But it's about Jesus himself. This is actually the way that you break bread is you actually remember that Jesus didn't just give you some sort of spiritual enrichment, but his own physical body was broken to accomplish this deliverance that is necessitated by God for the atonement of his people. The second element is wine, but really juice. So don't freak out. Um, I don't think we need to be that faithful to like have to use like alcoholic beverages and, and there's been a ton of debate. People have debated, like, how alcoholic wine actually was. Um, but the essence is if it's the fruit of grapes. That's what the word means, so we do grape juice. One time, I did cranberry grape juice, and I don't know if anybody noticed, but I didn't have any grape juice. So, and I think we still took communion that day as well. And as I was reading about this... Um, to the Jewish believer, the part of Passover and even just the part of Shabbat that is wine consists of this symbol to represent the, the redemption of Israel. That the Lord was not just delivering them, but he was buying them back out of compromise. He was buying them back out of their own sin and the oppression of others. And this symbol was to mean deliverance. Or I'm sorry, redemption. And I think... Uh, <laughs> It, it, it's such a clear line, and, I, and I'm so thankful for um, the New Testament. I'm so thankful for um, Bible teaching and things like this, that it just feels so good to just, like, connect that. It feels like one of those really satisfying, like, if you've got, like, a suitcase that has clips on it, that it just clips in a really nice, 
smooth way. It feels like that to say the wine represents redemption. To the Jewish people, it represents redemption. And then to realize that that the wine represents the blood that was poured out of Jesus, the sacrifice that he gave, his own blood, as this atoning sacrifice, which is kind of a Yom Kippur thing that just recently passed by. It's a different holiday, different teaching. But <laughs> the blood of Jesus, that it, it connects us to the redemption, that there was a wage that was due for us. I love in Romans 6, it says that the wage of sin is death. I mean... That's a high price, that God has a debt for us. Maybe that's a weird way to word that. We have a debt for God. Maybe that, that makes a little bit more sense. And we are hopeless in our own death to accomplish and satisfy this debt. But the Lord himself died for his own credit that we could be right with him. And that's what the cup means is the redemption of the saints by the blood of Jesus. And not only that, but it invokes all the images of, of Abraham walking through the, the, the sacrifice and the fire of God passing through the spirit of the Lord resting on the sacrifice of the covenant of the Old Testament. But now this is a new covenant, that the body of Jesus is the sacrifice. The blood of Jesus is sprinkled on the altar, so to speak, and now it is a good and everlasting covenant with the Lord. There's one more element. It's not necessarily included in the story, but if we believe that these were like decent Jewish people, it was present on the table was lamb. Jesus doesn't talk about the lamb, but I think we can draw the line pretty clearly that uh, there was a Passover lamb and it had, again, to be eaten in its entirety that night. And, and the, the sacrifice of this lamb was significant for the namesake of the holiday, that is the Passover, that they would, they would put the blood of the lamb on their doorpost so that way the angel of death would know not to kill their firstborn son. <sighs> the Bible is wild. Like, if you get into this stuff, you'll never be bored, man. This is wild. And so this, this catastrophic tragic sign to the Egyptian hard hearts was, was executed in one night and they celebrate by eating a delicious lamb every year. And it, it's, it's easy to assume that lamb would have been on the table. They would have eaten it just like all the Passovers in the past. But this time, the lamb represented in Jesus himself giving his own blood to make it so that we are right with God and that this covenant is enacted through him. <sighs> Everybody still with me? It's going to get a tiny bit harder before it just gets really fun. Okay? Say okay. I have toddlers, so I need verbal confirmation. We talked about this. You were all here for that. So there are four primary views on this. And uh, I think it's worth it to talk about them just in case we need to unload a little bit of baggage from the past. Um, and, and forgive me, baggage is a good thing if you're traveling. Sometimes you need some baggage. It helps you get where you need to go. But if you're carrying things unnecessarily, get rid of them. So I don't want <laughs> to yuck anybody's yum because uh, I don't think any of these are direct heresy or anything like that. I think a couple of them are pretty weird. But uh, I, I don't want to shame somebody for their background or something that's been helpful to them in Jesus. But I want to just bring to light what the scripture actually says. So the first view, and this is something that a lot of people are familiar with, um, is transubstantiation. This is the view that's held predominantly by the Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic Church. And it's a view that when you take communion, um, generally called the Eucharist, that... The, the bread that was, was laid there by a priest, the, the wine that was poured by a person, transforms into the literal body and blood of Jesus. Because it says, this is my body, and this is my blood. Now, I don't think this is a highly defensible theory. So if you're from a Catholic background, again, I don't want to like make you feel embarrassed or shame you or call you, call you out, make you stand up, we all point and laugh. I don't think this is what Jesus is saying, and let me tell you why. Because when he broke the bread, he was still, in his corporeal form, had a body, <laughs> right? And when he poured the wine, it came out of a vessel, and he still very much had his blood inside of his body. I don't think that's what he was doing. 
And, it, and I didn't go like deep dive and read all the, the history of why they developed this sort of theology, but I don't think it's necessarily helpful to understand the, the, the activity that happens when you take communion, when you take the Lord's Supper. The second view that um, is generally called like the Lutheran view, but it was held by Martin Luther himself, so it comes from somewhere, is consubstantiation. And this one's a little bit more chill, and it says that it's not that the, the, the elements literally transform into flesh and blood, but more so that the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Jesus, comes alongside the elements when you take them, that there is physical benefit to taking them, but not actual eating of human flesh. The third view is the radical response to the first two views. Nothing happens. <laughs> it's just bread. It's just juice. It's a good memory. That's what I was talking about before, like the ground level. That's like, it's just a good symbol, and traditions aren't all bad. Let's just, let's just do it and don't think too much about it. The fourth view, and I, think, I think the more scripturally defensible view, because if it's the last one, it's obviously the right one. Um, the fourth view, and the commentary I read obviously had this perspective. Um, the fourth view is that the elements are just that. They're symbols, they're elements, but there is something that happens when you receive them in faith. That when you receive from God in faith something that is painfully ordinary and a little stale will transform your life in a powerful way. I think there's something that happens as a person who is painfully logical to a fault. It's, it's a powerful thing to realize like, man, when, when, when I do something, not just out of blind obedience, but out of genuine trust and loyalty to God, there is spiritual activity that surrounds that thing. I used this example earlier, and I didn't have this in my notes, but I actually think it's pretty sick, so I'm going to throw it at you again. Um, I feel like that with raising my hands. I'm not a super demonstrative person, and most of you only know me in this context, but I think singing really loud and lifting my hands and, and, and those sort of outward demonstrations, even kneeling in prayer. I don't think there's something that like is so natural to me about those things. But I believe because of the example of scripture that it sets through, through, through psalms and instructions and these different things, that there is something that happens when you do those things in faith, that God sees that and it's like a lightning rod. It's powerful and it's meaningful. And as much as I want it to be a formula that I can punch things into, as much as I want it to be a sentence that I can diagram, there's something that's powerful when it's done in faith. And we'll look at that more in just a moment. So why do we do this today? And maybe you read that story in Luke 22 and you're like, I feel like it's, it's pretty, pretty bold to assume that he's telling us to do this every Sunday. But, again, if we, if we take ourselves and our biases and our, our own criticism out of the equation and we read how the actual audience of this thing dealt with this, they took it as do this all the time. We have, we have good reason to believe that in the book of Acts they were doing this on a daily basis. And it was a significant symbol to them, and they were keeping it, and they were celebrating it regularly, and the rest of the New Testament testifies to this heavily. So maybe Luke 22 by itself isn't enough for you, but the rest of the New Testament will surely give you a proof that this is a powerful symbol that should be kept and is not outdated. And as it connects that line all the way back from that first Passover through all of history, then it just cracks through the incarnation, the, the redemption of all people through the death and resurrection of Jesus, and then ties a line from the early church to all of its tributaries, to us today, that's a powerful thing. And there are people who disagree about like meeting on Sunday or what time of day you meet. And there's the northern and southern hemisphere, so we're not all meeting at the same time. Some people meet earlier. Some people meet in the evening. I'm not really so concerned about that. I don't think the Bible gives us really specific instructions about those kinds of things. So I'm not worried about those kinds of things. But the idea is there's something that's actually really cool about the fact that we are taking communion with saints all over the world every week. That's a powerful thing. And I think that's a reason that you should take communion in your church. Is that we are all remembering and proclaiming the death of Jesus together. 
and throughout history, from the, like, Armenian apostolic church that actually tries to trace their origins to the apostles themselves from like like uh, like house churches in India that are oppressed by the government and and these different sort of factions and from the the, the mega church to the home church to the rural church to the city church to the 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 family of fellowship that doesn't have a fellowship in their town that are just trying to meet together and be faithful to Jesus we are connected in Jesus, to the Father, proclaiming his death, and it's a witness to people that Jesus is the Lord and he was sent by God. That's a good reason to do it today. But we're going to look at the Bible too. 1 Corinthians 11. We've read this several times on Sunday morning to kind of introduce the Lord's Supper. This is Paul. And uh, Paul was really in the know. Like, I, I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to uh, give I, I don't know how much credit we, we can't over give credit to Paul. He really knew what was going on in the church. He was very connected, very smart. And so he's talking to the Corinthian church and he is addressing a specific issue that's going on. But in that uh, address, he is encouraging the people to keep the Lord's Supper and to keep it well. So let's read that. Verse 23, it says, For I, I being Paul, received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This is the cup of the covenant in my blood, do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself. In doing so, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. So it's pretty clear. And, and, and again, for context, Paul is not telling them this because they weren't doing it. He's actually giving this instruction and reminding them where it comes from because they were doing it inappropriately. And, and he clearly expects that they're doing this. Like, this is a part of what they received. The, the, uh, wow, I really got tongue-tied there for a second. Um, this is literally something that the apostles considered they received from the Lord. It's not just something that they came up with that was a helpful trinket to put on their desk. This is something that they received from the Lord. And, and I want to take a moment to, to talk about this, this kind of ending part. Um, if we could look at... Um, We'll start at 27 again, and I just want to read that one more time, and we're going to read the next uh, little bit as well. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord, but a man must examine himself, and in doing so, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup, for he who eats and drinks eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. Let's go on to verse 30, and... Uh, Buckle up, this is, this is kind of intense. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. But if we judge ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord, so that we will not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that you will not come together for judgment. The remaining matters I will arrange when I come. So, I, I want to look at this part, because this is, like, not my favorite part. This is kind of a, a, a strange part to explain. And I think in the context of, of the Corinthian church, there was something that was, like, really, like, lustful and, and strange about the way that we were taking the Lord's Supper together. Like, I don't know. I don't know. I, don't, I, I can't necessarily describe it in great detail, but they were prone to being unethical, so maybe they were doing something that was like ravenous and, and greedy about the way they were taking the Lord's Supper. That seems to be kind of what Paul is talking about. But uh, on being unworthy to take communion, I, I think there are kind of two dimensions to this. Um, the reality is communion isn't just uh, a snack to get you through a long service, to hold you over till you go get some fried chicken at City Market. Um, 
it is a, a symbol. It's a meaningful thing. And so when we tell people that they are, are welcome to take communion with us, that is under the presupposition that you are a follower of Jesus. And if you today are not a follower of Jesus, you can become a follower of Jesus at the speed of faith. <laughs> you know, like um, Pastor Al DeBoer used to say, at the speed of thought. I like that a lot because it's like if you actually would look to Jesus and, and, and kind of ascend your thinking to just be like, Jesus, I believe you are who you said you are. And I want to believe in my heart and confess with my mouth that Jesus is Lord. You're a Christian, baby. Like, it, it's, it's that kind of transaction that is so powerful. And you can take communion with us. You don't have to go through a class or anything like that. If you want to talk more about it, and I sincerely hope you do, we, we want to make every sort of provision to talk to you about the Lord and about following Jesus and about being a Christian. But that's the first dimension to being, quote-unquote, worthy to take communion. Is It's something for Christians. It's not just something for a snack. Does it make sense? The second dimension is not like, well, because you sinned X amount of times, you need to take a break this week. I, I fear that that's what people think. And the reason that I fear that is because I've thought that before. I've thought like... I, I feel like I'm just not in the right place right now to take communion, so I'll sit this one out, and hopefully next week goes better, <laughs> and, and I'll take communion next week. I'm still Christian, still want to follow Jesus, but it was a rough week, if I'm being honest. The Lord was good, I was not. <laughs> and if that's you, raise your hand. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Don't raise your hand. Um, but... Understand that's not what it's talking about, because the reality is none of us are worthy to have communion with Jesus. None of us have done enough righteous acts that Jesus is, is, is somehow entitling us to a seat at his table. That we get to share in this ordinance, this symbol, this glorious proclamation of the Lord because of his grace. Because of his mercy. That we are wounded and weak and we are prone to deprave and evil things, but the Lord has shown us grace and kindness and enabled us to sit at his table with right standing. And God the Father looks at us the way he looks at Jesus. That's a beautiful thing. The righteousness of God imparted to us by faith and grace. I like this, this quote from, uh, this is from a, uh, uh, Michael Marx gave me this, or I don't know, maybe he lended it to me, but I've been using it a lot, um, this book on, on Pentecostal theology, and, and the authors, Duffield and Van Cleve, wrote this about, about being unworthy. He says, no one is worthy in himself to have communion with Jesus, but we have the privilege by virtue of the atoning work which the elements symbolize. However, participants need to examine themselves in relation to their manner of taking and their attitude toward other believers. Participants, furthermore, should be certain to discern the Lord's body and not, take part, or not partake in an irreverent or frivolous manner. Partaking in faith can bring great blessing, even spiritual and physical healing. And uh, the reason that these, these uh, holders of, of doctorates in Bible theology and languages can say something like that is because Paul is literally saying, because you are so mistreating the Lord's Supper, you are sick. And, and pull the veil off. Generally, in, in the New Testament, when they say the word sleep, they mean dead. Some of you have died because you are disrespecting the Lord's Supper. And I don't know if that means the Lord is killing people. <laughs> but I think what, what we can surmise from that is there actually is a blessing to taking this with reverence and faith. So I'm not saying like, man, if you jack this up today, it's only a matter of time. Not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. No, I'm just kidding. Sorry, I'm trying to make it light. This is a big deal. I make jokes because I'm self-conscious. But, um, 
But I think this is, this is powerful, and I think this is something that even when I think about communion on a regular basis, I don't necessarily think about this dimension, but he's talking about, Paul is talking about the way that we are interacting with one another, the way that we are, are treating one another, if we have offenses against each other, if we are preferring ourselves over the needs of others, if we are in inappropriate relationship with one another, that needs to be resolved. So it's not just a matter of skipping communion like, well, I hate you. So I'll just skip communion and we'll call it good. No, the point is to seek reconciliation because as the Lord forgave us, we are to forgive one another. And it's a worthy and fitting thing to do. And beyond that, and I don't know how often we run into this. I don't want to say this isn't important, so I'm not going to talk about it. But there is some sort of frivolity that people will bring to the Lord's table where they'll take it in greed or they'll take it in, in some sort of inappropriate apportioning. And, and I'm not entirely sure how that works. But if that speaks to your heart today, uh, if the Holy Spirit is convicting you over that, like, I'm not going to be offended if you take a couple crackers after service is over. That's not, I think, what they're talking about. We always have leftovers. We rarely run out completely. But I think there's something to the irreverence or even entitlement of taking communion. I think it should be something that as we examine ourselves and we seek the Lord, that he convicts us and he moves on our hearts and that before the cross, we are humbled. And let me tell you, when the Lord picks us up and sanctifies us, it's a lot easier to do so when we are already low. But if you feel like, well, of course Jesus died for me because I'm the best. I think there is some sort of calculation and calibrating that needs to happen in your faith that would, would actually improve that. And guys, if this is true, and I, I believe it is, I'm not, asking, I'm not like forcing you like this is the way it works, but as, as I studied this this week, as I read this, Lord, I pray that people would be physically and spiritually healed as they remember the cross of Christ at the Lord's Supper. What a blessing. What a beautiful thing. That, that we could be unified together and that we could present ourselves before Jesus as he is doing a marvelous, continually work, continual work in our lives, I pray that people's lives would be impacted spiritually and physically. I have one more quote from you, and this is probably the most dotted letters that I've ever read before a theologian's name, so he must be very good. H.D.M. Spence. <laughs> I don't know what all those letters stand for, but seems good. I have a commentary. It's not like I just looked up communion quotes. Like, um, I have a commentary. I read his whole thing on this, on this section. Um, he says this, Further, the partaking of this holy communion is, above all, the Christian's most solemn prayer for living union with Christ, that Christ may dwell in his heart by faith. It is, too, his fervent expression of the belief that when that we dwell in Christ and Christ in us, we are one with Christ and Christ in us. This confession, declaration, and prayer he constantly renews in obedience to the dying command of his master. So what this is saying is that when we take the Lord's Supper, spoiler alert, we're going to do this today, like we do every week, uh, when we take this, it's not just a symbol, but it is a, a prayer and a declaration to be faithful to Jesus. It's a confession that we believe that he really did die. It's a confession that his death really did mean something. And like Paul says, we proclaim that until he comes back. So not only is it a proclamation of, of him bearing his cross on uh, Golgotha, but it is a proclamation of the inevitable and soon coming return of the Lord. That this is the gospel, you guys. The gospel isn't that he just saved us to live an ordinary life on earth, but the gospel is that he is coming back. How hopeful it is in the chaos and the trial of this world to realize that Jesus actually is coming back and he's going to fix all the things that are wrong. The redemption of all things is not a, a theological distinctive. This is the truth of the scripture that, that makes us the hopeful people. That one day this flesh will die and decay, but he will raise us up with him. When he appears, we appear and we will be like him. And that's what communion is. It's, it's the proclamation. It's the memory. 
It is, it is the, the loving photograph that you have on your mantle, but it's also this, this spiritual activity where we unite ourselves to one another and to Jesus and to the church throughout all of history, and that's a beautiful, powerful thing. So I, I want to invite you this morning to, uh, in an orderly fashion, I know you're all excited about this now because that was so great, um, <laughs> um, in an orderly fashion, if you, would, if you would come up and if you would grab the elements and return to your seat, we will take communion together. Thank you for listening to this week's message. If you want to check out more of our messages, find us on Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube. Just search Open Door Pagosa. Our ministry is made possible by the faithful generosity of people just like you. If you were blessed by this morning's message and want to partner with what the Lord is doing in Pagosa Springs, find us at opendoorpagosa.com. Here you can give and stay connected with everything we are doing as a church.